I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and what a joy to be able to celebrate the Lord's table, to remember Him giving His body for us and shedding His blood for us, and how good God is in the gospel of Jesus. We get to celebrate that as we open the Word of God to Exodus 28 and 29. We're going to be exploring a very wonderful reality about Christ being our great high priest. That's a common theme in really all the world's religions and even in pagan idolatry about that sense that mankind has of a need for a priest, a need for a mediator. And yet in the Bible, in the Old Testament, for the Jewish nation, the the priesthood was elevated to a whole new level. And in the New Testament, as we see Christ, our great high priest, we recognize the fact that because of what the Bible reveals about the holiness of God, our reality of our need for a priest is even more acute, more necessary. And the provisions of God in Christ are even more glorious and more amazing, more complete and more superior because of who Jesus is. And so um, when you think about the name Christ, it literally means the anointed one, the Messiah. And it speaks of the three offices that Jesus holds, uh, all of them in the Old Testament, and all of them representing in some way our need for a mediator between us and God. So Jesus is anointed as the Messiah, as the King who is the king of kings, the emperor of the universe, greater than David, greater than Solomon, in his glory and his power and his authority and his sovereignty and his riches. And Jesus is greater than Moses as our great high priest because he is the ultimate revelation of God who makes God known to us because he's the living word. And in similar fashion, Jesus is the great high priest. And as our great high priest, he's far greater than what we're going to even see in the priesthood of Aaron, the the high priest in the Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe. Why? Because Jesus offers a greater sacrifice, that of his own blood. And Jesus is both God and man and is the perfect mediator. The priests in the Old Testament never finished their work. They never sat down. And Jesus is pictured as seated at the right hand of the Father because he's done the work of atonement for us. And it's a great and glorious reality that Jesus actually leads worship now in heaven as a great high priest because of his ministry for us. And and as our priest, he does all of that for us, and we glory in that. Christ is our great high priest who stands between a holy God and a sinful people. He stands between the holiness of God and a sinful people. And friend, that's you and that's me. I hope through this message you're going to come to recognize something of the holiness of God. That you'll come to recognize how desperately we needed someone to bridge that gap that was sung about this morning between God's holiness and our need. And how Jesus in the ultimate way provides for that. As, we, as you hear this message, as we unpack Exodus 28 and 29, there's three applications I want you to listen for this morning, okay? First of all, we want to glory in Christ our great high priest, understanding that, that what we see about the Aaronic, uh, the, the priesthood of Aaron, looks forward to Christ. Secondly, we actually see the revelation of the gospel in these chapters as we look to the sacrifice of Christ and even the garments of the high priest. But, but also there is this call on your life and mine. 
when we see the holiness of God and we understand what Christ did for us, that we should have this desire, this yearning, that we would become increasingly set apart to God in holy living. And so those are the three applications I want you to be focusing on. When you think about the role of the high priest, I want to just zoom in on that for a moment. The high priest was a representative and a mediator between God and man. He represented God to the people and the people to God. He was the bridge between a holy God and sinful men. The high priest did this by sacrifice. He did this by prayer. He did this by the teaching of the word. On the one hand, he was an advocate for the people before God. And on the other hand, he was a representative of God to the people. He was a mediator. And so we, when we look at Exodus 28, for instance, you'll notice here, God says, I want you to serve me, have him serve me as priest, verse 1. Later, he says in verse um, 3, they're to consecrate him for the priesthood. And then again in verse 4, Aaron and his sons are to serve me as priests. And so the priests were to serve God. They were to represent the people before God. And yet, as we're going to see in the stones that were on the priest's shoulders and on his breastplate, he actually represented the people as well. And so in Christ, we see that there is this provision for you and me between a holy God and our sinfulness. In the book of Hebrews, Pastor Joel, this, this coming fall, Lord willing, is going to be leading us in an exposition of the book of Hebrews. I am so looking forward to that. Because the key idea of the book of Hebrews is better or superior, that Christ is superior to anything that could be compared to him, even in the Old Testament, including the priesthood. And so there's wonderful, wonderful focus, and and the mid part of the book of Hebrews focuses on this idea of priesthood. The second thing as we prepare to unpack these chapters that you need to see is there's an emphasis in these two chapters, chapter 28 and 29 of Exodus, of the holiness of God. The idea of holiness literally means to be set apart. And so God is set apart from anything in creation that we could compare him to. That's why in the Ten Commandments God said, you're not to have any other gods before me and you're not to make any idols because I'm the incomparable holy God. The other aspect of the holiness of God is that God is totally set apart from sin. I really think within our, even within the church culture in the Western world today, we have lost the concept of the holiness of God. We, we, we tend to continue to adjust our view of sin to wherever the winds and the waves of the culture are blowing. And, and friends, I want you to know we need to adjust our view of sin and our view of God to the Scripture. God is an infinitely holy God. That means God cannot have sin dwell in his presence. God has zero tolerance for sin. God doesn't grade on a curve. God is holy. He's set apart from sin. And God has this reaction to sin that calls forth his judgment and his wrath whenever sin is in his presence. If we don't understand how totally set apart, how totally other God is, and we don't have a comprehension of the holiness of God, friends, we will not understand the cross. The cross matters because God's holiness demands it. 
and what the love and grace and mercy of God provided in Christ satisfied the demands of his holiness. We need to understand that. So 22 times in these two chapters, holiness is mentioned. 14 times the idea of consecration is mattered or to be set apart to God. That is a major focus in these chapters. The book of Leviticus that comes after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is the priest's handbook. And 96 times in the book of Leviticus, holiness is mentioned. Three times God says in Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. In other words, God not only saw the priesthood of Aaron as holy and the Levitical uh, tribe as holy, but he saw the entire people of Israel as needing to be holy. In Exodus 19, verse 6, he said, I've made you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want you to be set apart to me. And in the same way, the book of First Peter says today, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's actually said three times in the book of, of Leviticus. So when we look at Exodus 28, just to be able to kind of unpack these two chapters for you, and believe me, we will, we will not be here all afternoon. Two chapters of the book of Exodus is a lot to unpack, but we're going to jump into it in just a minute. Exodus 28, you can just kind of think about it this way. Exodus 28 is about the priest's garments. So chapter 28, garments. Chapter 29 is about sacrifices. And the two of those chapters together talk about the consecration of the priest being made holy so that they can serve as mediators before God. So if you go to chapter 28, verses 1 to 4, we see something about the priest's garments. And God says to Moses, bring near Aaron, your brother, his sons with him from among the people to serve me as priests. And, and Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. These garments are for glory, that is, they're to reflect the glory of God, and for beauty, to represent that our God is an awesomely beautiful God. He is the greatest of artists in his creation and all about him. And you shall speak to the skillful um, men that I've, that I've filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments, these garments to consecrate him, to set him apart as holy for my priesthood. And then he gives a list of the garments that he's going to unpack. Uh, a breast, the breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker uh, work, a turban, and a sash. Holy garments for Aaron to be set apart to me. So as we, uh, as we look for just a moment at a picture here, you're going to see that uh, part of the garments uh, are, the, are the shoulder pieces. That's called an ephod. And then the part that was up upon his heart was the chest piece. And these garments are made of woven fabric. There were threads made of beaten gold. There were blue. There was purple. And there was also scarlet. And the garments that he wore were made of fine linen. Now, when we think about those, the, the woven beauty of that, God said us to be for glory and beauty, and they are beautiful. The, the gold may picture deity. The blue pictures the heavenly uh, representative that he was. The purple represents the royalty, and the scarlet, his sacrifice. Now, don't build a new denomination about that, but it just seems to make sense in light of the Scripture, okay? And so the ephah, the shoulder piece, was made of that, and the breastplate was also made of that. 
I want you to notice the ephod, the shoulder pieces, you have there two onyx stones, those black stones. And you can see in Hebrew that there's six names on one shoulder, six names on the other shoulder. Those are the names of the tribes of Israel in birth order. He was to carry them upon his shoulder. And verse 12 explains what that is representing, what it really is to mean. You see, it's, it says, um, you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So these two onyx stones, he's bearing the burdens of the people on his shoulders when he comes be before them and God. Now, if you look at the breastplate, the part that's down below, you'll see they're woven with the same colors, fastened with golden chains, and there's four rows of stones. You can read the description there of every one of them as a precious jewel, a gem of a different color. Every one of those stones also were engraved with one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And verse 30 tells us what that represents, why that matters. Actually, we'll start in verse 20, 29. Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes to the holy place. He'll bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And then later in verse 30, they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people on his heart before the Lord regularly. So look up here for a minute. When you think of those two things, the ephod and the breastplate, it represents the fact that when the high priest went into the holy place to do his daily ministry, and once a year when he went into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, that he was bearing the burdens of the people on his shoulders and bearing the people of God on his heart. That is, he's representing God before the people and the people before God. It's a beautiful picture, friends, of the intercessory ministry of Jesus as he prays for his own, as he prays for us. Hebrews 7.25, you may want to mark this down because I think it's so beautifully pictured in the priest's garment. The Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That means he ever lives to pray for us. I don't know if you think about this, but right now in heaven, one of the things that Jesus occupies himself with is praying for us. Now, it's one thing when a friend says to me, I'm praying for you. My wife said to me this morning before I left, Jim, I'm praying for you as you preach. And I, and I sent her a text later, thank you for praying. And I, I appreciate people praying. But it's another thing to know that the God of glory, my great high priest Jesus, is praying for me. That makes a difference, friends. Did you know that when Jesus went to the cross, before he went to the cross, you were on his heart? Do you know that Jesus prayed for you the night before he went to Calvary? You say, well, how do you know that? Because in John chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus prayed the night before the cross. And in that prayer, this is one of the things he says. Father, I don't pray for these alone, meaning the 12 disciples, but I pray for all those that will believe on me through their word. You know who that is? That's you and that's me. Jesus prayed for you before he went to the cross. We were on his heart before hill, the Calvary's hill he climbed. We were on his heart before he died for all mankind. I want to tell you, that's good news. Jesus, our great high priest, still prays for us. He prayed for us then, and he prays for us now. And I find that very comforting. Sometimes you say, I don't know how to pray about this. That's all right. Jesus is praying for you. He's got it covered. 
And the Holy Spirit ever lives to make intercession for us. So, so you have the, the Trinity in prayer for you. It's a wonderful picture of Christ, my great high priest. I want you to also notice that the robe that he is wearing, the robe that he's wearing, and you can see another picture here of the high priest. Uh, by the way, this is not an actual picture of the actual high priest. This is at, actually out of the tabernacle model that is in Israel. Um, they didn't have cameras back then. I just want you to know I'm aware of that. But he's wearing this robe, this robe, and it's um, in the robe. If you look down at the bottom of the robe, you can see there's these things dangling. And as you see the description of that in Scripture, the, the robe is described for us from verse 31 to 35. And the robe has um, down at the hem pomegranates that are woven of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, some of those same colors, with gold bells between them. At the hem of the garment, and we're told twice that that is there. You say, why would we have that detail of the high priest's garment having pomegranates and gold? Now, I'm not going to try to build a theology of pomegranates because I think that was just an expression of the beauty and the glory of God. But the bells were told what they represent. We're told exactly what those were about. We read in verse 35, It shall be when Aaron, when he ministers, that is, when he serves God as a high priest, its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, so that he does not die. What is that talking about? It's saying that those bells were on the hem of the garment so that when he went into the holy place and people that were worshipers are gathered outside, they're listening to the bells and saying, when the bells stop ringing, we have reason to be concerned because our great high priest just died. And... When he goes once a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies, bringing the atoning sacrifice for God's people, we're going to be listening for the bells. And when the bells stop ringing, we have reason to be concerned because our great high priest died. Matter of fact, there are records that some of the rabbis have that they actually tied a rope around the high priest's ankle in case he died so somebody could yank him out. Say, so, wow. Do you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, there were three days. No bells were ringing. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And the bells of heaven were ringing because Jesus rose from the dead. And that's still good news on a Sunday in West Michigan in 2021. You agree? That's good news. The bells of heaven were ringing because Jesus had died and risen again. And what he did was enough to satisfy God. I want you to notice also there's a turban. That is the headpiece. Verse 36. You're going to make a plate of pure gold and engrave it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. You're to fasten it by cords of blue. It's to be on his forehead, that is, he bears the guilt of the holy things and the people of Israel. It's to be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So this is the headpiece. And, and in Hebrew, there would be the words, holy to the Lord. Why? Picturing that on his mind, he is to have a mind that is set apart in holiness to God. In holiness to God. All of life is to be set apart in holiness to God. Friends, it's impossible for us to live a holy life if we don't think holy thoughts. Do you realize your thoughts are the greatest predictor of what's going to be on your heart? 
Your thoughts control your actions, your choices, your character, and your habit. That's why the New Testament talks so much about your mind. Just trace it through in the New Testament. But Paul in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And, and all through the New Testament, your mind, holiness to the Lord. He's to have that on his mind. He's to be thinking, I, I need to control my thoughts by controlling what comes into my thoughts through my eyes. Are you controlling your thoughts with holiness to the Lord? Are you guarding your thoughts? Are you guarding your eyes so that holiness to the Lord dominates your life, a life set apart to God? The high priest was to wear that. By the way, in the Old Testament, we're given prophecies about the coming kingdom of Jesus on earth. And in that coming kingdom, all the pots and all of the cooking uh, ware is going to have written on it, holiness to the Lord. Why? It's as if God is saying to people in that day, all of life is sacred. All of life is to be set apart to God. doesn't matter what you do for a living. Everything we do, everything we are, is to be set apart to God. Holiness to the Lord. So such was the impression of God's holiness. In the closing part of chapter 28, verses 40 to 40, um, 43, it talks about the tunics and the garments that all of Aaron's sons were to wear, that they were to have um, pants that they were to wear, they were to have the tunics that they were to wear, the headpieces that they were to wear, so that when they go into the altar to serve God and minister in the holy place, lest they bear their guilt and die, verse 43. Friends, this is pretty serious stuff. You don't mess with a holy God. You don't come into the presence of a holy God without holiness. It is incredibly dangerous. Two sons of Aaron were killed when they came to God with strange fire. God consumed them with fire. The Bible says in the New Testament, our God is a consuming fire. When we lose this concept of the holiness of God, we are losing something very central to Old and New Testament. Not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. God is a holy God. So we see the garments of the high priest picturing this need to be set apart in holiness and the provisions of God we have in Christ. The second thing we see in chapter 29 is the dedication to God by sacrifice. And again, as in chapter 28, you have an introduction verse 29, verses 1 to 3. He says, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, to make them holy. And they're going to serve me as priests. And he tells them about the sacrifices they're to bring. A bull, two rams, unleavened bread, unleavened cakes. They're to, to bring all of that. And they're to put them in a basket. And they're to bring them with the bull and the two lambs. And so he's saying, you need to bring sacrifice. Friends, in the Old Testament, when you read through, if you've ever read through the book of Leviticus, you get to that place, you're saying, it, it's innumerable the number of sacrifices that were offered in even a year. How many bulls, how many lambs, how much blood was shed in the tabernacle and later the temple? And so we're going to see some of those sacrifices here, but they're going to be offered in order to consecrate the high priest. We need to remember this. Jesus didn't need any sacrifices made to consecrate him. Why? Because he had no sin. Jesus himself offers himself as a sacrifice for us. And so we see in the sacrifice, we see the preparation in verses 4 through 9. We're told three things that are to happen to prepare for the sacrifice. They're to bring uh, the sons of Aaron 
to the entrance of the tent of meeting, verse 4, and wash them. Verse 5, they're to put the garments on. And verse 7, there's to be anointing of oil. So three things that they're due to prepare for this. They're to wash, and if you look at the picture of the tabernacle, again, this is the one that Pastor Luke shared with us last week. You see the tabernacle, and you see out in front of it the altar of sacrifice with the horns on the four corners, and then just to the right of that, you see the laver where the priest would wash. And so this activity we're going to be talking about happened right there in the tabernacle. We'll zoom in a little closer so you can get a better look. So there you see the altar of sacrifice, and you can just picture the blood that is being shed and poured out at the bottom of that, the, the smoke and the fire that would come from that, the laver where they would wash. And so the priests would come and they would wash, they would put on their garments, and they would be anointed with oil. You know, it's very interesting to me that when it talks about our lives being set apart to God, we are told that Jesus washes us with washing of water by the word, Ephesians 5.26. He washes us. He cleanses us. Friends, that's why I need a daily dose of time in this book, because Jesus washes me from my sin through his word as he has already through his shed blood. Secondly, I need to put on the garments. That's why I'm told to put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of my mind, and put on my, the new man. I'm to change garments. And the oil representing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I am anointed by the Holy Spirit, so God wants you and I to be set apart to him as believer priests. He's called us to that. And then we see the sacrifices. The first sacrifice we see is the bull, the bull, verses 10 to 14. And as they bring the bull before the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons lay their hands, they take their hands, and they lay their hands on the head of the bull. Apparently the bull is tied up and somebody's holding the bull. But putting their hands on the bull, picturing, they're identifying with the bull, they're putting their sins upon the bull, they're remembering that, and so they are identifying by faith with the sacrifice. And we're going to see later the same thing happens when they bring the, the, the rams. They put their, heads upon, their hands upon the head of the ram. Friends, a beautiful verse in Isaiah 53 that speaks of Christ. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed. See, when we by faith believe that there's no way that I can come before a holy God, but that Jesus paid it all, and we trust in him, it's like we're putting our, our hands on the head of the sacrifice and saying, we're identifying with that sacrifice. They then kill the, ram, the, the bull, and they, in verse 11, and at the entrance of the tent of meeting, they take part of the blood of the bull, and they put it on the horns of the altar, and the rest of it they pour at the base of the altar, and they take all of the fat and all of the different parts of the, of the organs of the bull, and they're to burn that in fire. And the leftovers of that, in verse 14, the, the, the flesh, the skin, they're to burn it outside of the camp. If you look in verses 15 to 37, we have a lot of detail here about the second sacrifice, the rams that are being sacrificed. And again, in verse 15, they lay their hands on an identification. They again kill the ram and apply its blood to the altar, the altar verse 20. And, and look at verse 20. We're given a different detail here. You're to kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and also his sons, on the thumbs of the right hands and the great toes of their right feet, and then throw the rest of the blood upon the altar. So here's what I want you to do. 
Everybody grab the, the lobe of your right ear right now, please, just so we can kind of identify with this. Okay, everybody knows which one's your right ear. Good. Now hold up your right thumb. I'm not going to ask you to take your shoes off and grab your right big toe, but you can imagine with it, okay? So what is all this about? Why are they taking blood and applying it to the ear? Why are they taking blood and applying it to the thumb of the right hand? Why are they taking blood and applying it to the big toe on the right foot? Because it is picturing this idea of being consecrated, set apart to God. Now think about this. The ear in the Old Testament represented being prepared to listen to the Word of God with an attitude of submission and obedience. So the blood being applied, saying that the priest needed to be ready to hear the voice of God through his word and obey God. The hand is with his, the hand were to do the will of God, and the right toe were to walk in the ways of God. You know, friends, that's not bad theology when you think about living a holy life. If I'm going to live a holy life, I need to listen to the word of God in submission and obedience. I need to be ready to do the will of God in obedience, and I need to walk in obedience in terms of my life. Friends, that's what it takes for God's priestly people to live a holy life. They're then in verse 22 to 25, they're to take this wave offering and offer that before the Lord. And secondly, in verse 26, they're going to bring this sacrifice and offer it to God. But notice in verse um, 25, as they burn the sacrifice on the altar, it is a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Later we'll see that in the continual burnt offering. A pleasing aroma before God. What is that about? It is in contrast to how our sin smells to God. I want you to think about the worst aroma you have ever smelled. The other day, riding with some, on my motorcycle with a group of guys from here, we drove by a pig farm. On the motorcycles, you've got no air conditioning, you can really smell that pig farm. Um, if you've ever smelled raw sewage, I mean, it's just horrible. The aroma of our sin is very distasteful to God. That's why a sacrifice that is a sweet-smelling savor matters. Because the sweet-smelling savor is more than enough to cover the aroma of our sin, the stench of our sin before God. I want you to notice that, that this was a sweet-smelling savor. Yesterday, Cal Clark, missionary that had been, has been supported by this church for 35 years in Brazil, went home to be with the Lord after a battle with pancreatic cancer. 35 years we've been partners with them. We're praying for Carol and for their family. They, they, they've served together for 35 years in evangelism and discipleship and church planting and leadership development. He was the head of a field council there in Brazil. And ultimately, the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, a great mission organization, asked him to represent and oversee the entire field of the great country of Brazil and to do so in an administrative role where he's washing the feet of disciples and national leaders. And they did that for 10 years. And yesterday, Calvin went home to be with Jesus. And I can just imagine what it was like for him to be able to enter 
the glory of heaven and the worship of heaven and the, the beauty of the triune God in heaven and to see angels and millions of people singing and worshiping to God and, and for him to hear our great high priest say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I believe he heard that, not by his own merits, but by the grace of our great high priest. And friends, may we so live that we hear those words when we enter the glory of heaven and those welcoming words from God. I want you to notice in verses 31 to 34, we're, we're told that they were to come to this, the, um, the place of meeting here. They were to take the ram and boil its flesh, verse 31. They were to eat of the ram and the bread and the basket. They were to eat those things that atonement was made, that part of the ordination of consecration. And, and any leftovers in verse 34 were to be burned. Why? Because fellowship is a part of our relationship with the holy God. Now, here's the thing that to me is just absolutely stellar. This infinitely holy God that I could never come before through the merits of my great high priest, I can actually sit down and have a meal with. At the end of this consecration, because of the sacrifice, you have Aaron and his sons sitting and having a meal with God. Uh, throughout the Bible, whenever you sit down and have a meal with someone, that's called fellowship. It still is today. I notice we like to eat when we get together, right? In the Gospel of Luke, repeatedly, Jesus sits down and has a meal with people, has fellowship with people. All the way in Revelation 3.20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open to me, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. And here, the high priests are having a meal in the presence of God. That's fellowship. That's relationship with God. So friends, when I think about my sin and how holy God is, and I think about what Jesus did to bridge that, to realize that I can now live a life of relationship, of fellowship with this holy God. It's an amazing and wonderful thing. And you look in verse 38, we have another, um, another reality of, of a sacrifice. You're to offer on the altar two lambs a year old, Day by day, this is a daily sacrifice regularly, one year to offer in the morning, the other at twilight, and when the first lamb, you're to offer all of this fine flour, you're to have beaten oil, you're to have wine as a drink offering, verse 41, the other lamb you're going to offer in the evening and offer with a grain offering and a drink offering in the morning as a pleasing aroma a food offering to God, again in verse 42, it's a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting where the Lord will meet with you and God's going to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it will be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate, set apart as holy, the tent of meeting and the altar and Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests and I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they will know that I am Jehovah their Elohim, their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt from slavery, from bondage, that I might dwell among them for I am the Lord their God. So I want you to catch this. Every morning, got to get the fire going again on the altar. Kill another lamb. Pour out its blood. Put it on the altar. Put on the bread. Put on the, 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 the oil. Put on the wine. Sweet smelling savor to God. All day long, 
it's to be an aroma before God. It's to burn. And then at night you're to do the same thing. So all night long, it is a continual daily burnt offering. Listen to this. Paul, after giving the great expression of the gospel in the book of Romans, comes to the end of chapter 11 with a great doxology of praise and then says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, your life is to be like that continual burnt offering. Your life is to be laid on the altar before God daily. Your life is to be that sweet-smelling savor to God of a life that is set apart to him. The problem with living sacrifices is that we keep crawling off the altar and we got to get back on and say, God, you are a holy God. You demand a holy people. I want to put my life in surrender to you, in service to you, because you are a holy God. So how do we do that? I want to wrap up with three questions this morning. Is Christ your great high priest? That is, have you trusted in his work on the cross for the payment of your sin? Have you recognized the holiness of God? Have you recognized your desperate need for a Savior who can bridge that gap? And that the only mediator that is worthy is Jesus. And what he did on the cross was enough. And if he is your Savior, live in gratitude to him. Live as that living sacrifice. And if he's not, then my friends, you need to realize how desperate your condition is without Jesus. If you're trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in your religion, if you're trusting in your baptism, if you're trusting in your legacy, if you're trusting in your ability to obey God in the flesh, then I want to tell you, you're going to be an abysmal failure. Because a holy God demands more than you can ever give, and only Jesus satisfies that. And it was enough. Secondly, has the gospel transformed you? If Christ is your great high priest, has the gospel changed you? And if it has, then friend, that's good news that you got to share. It's good news you need to share with the people you work with, the people you live next to, for relatives and friends. When is the last time you shared the good news of what Christ has done for you with somebody else? This world is desperate to know that a holy God has made provision for them to be reconciled to him. And thirdly, is your life dedicated to God? In other words, is your life being set apart in holiness? The Bible teaches God is holy. You and I don't get to decide that, but we can't ignore it. That Jesus, is great, the great high priest, made it possible for that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness to be, to be bridged as our mediator. But God calls us to live a holy life. To live a life that's incrementally and continually being lived before his face, being lived and sacrificed for him so that our lives are continual burnt offerings. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our great high priest. Thank you that through his death on the cross, the demands of your holiness were met by the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you that because of him, our sins can be forgiven. We can be redeemed, bought back from the slavery to sin. 
We can be declared righteous before your justice. We can be cleansed from the defilement of our heart and conscience. We can, we can be those who are reconciled to a holy God. God, I pray that we'll never forget that what Jesus did on the cross was more than enough to satisfy your holiness. That your grace and mercy and love met the demands of your holiness on the cross. And we rejoice in Jesus, our great high priest, in whose name we pray. Amen.